Please turn with me, if you would, this morning to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. One of the things that I'm extremely thankful for and we're greatly blessed with as a church is to have people with many, many different talents and God-given gifts. And It's a joy to get here on Sunday morning and to know that you can't do much in the way of music and that you know that you have at least one person who can play so beautifully <laughs> and uh, accompany the music. So that's a real joy. But uh, if you would turn with me to Revelation 2 and listen as I read aloud from God's Word. <clears throat> to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you dwell with your word and work through your Holy Spirit to accomplish the purpose for which you have given us your word. Whether it is sun or clouds, rain or snow, cold or warm, regardless of what the temperature or conditions around us, regardless of what the temperature or condition of our hearts and our souls, your Holy Spirit will have his will and have his way. And we ask you to send your Holy Spirit among us with power this morning as we examine your word together, that we might be changed, not for the moment, but for eternity, through your power. In Jesus' name, amen. I heard something interesting on the radio yesterday. Um, several, in, in the past five years, I guess we've sent two trips up to the Boundary Waters, Minnesota. And I thought you, those of you who went, there's not a whole lot of you here this morning, but uh, those of you who went would be interested to know that this past week, I think it was on Thursday, that Ely, Minnesota, which is right across from Grand Marais where we always go in, was 52 degrees below zero. <laughs> That's country up there. <laughs> <coughs> I'd like to also give credit to part of for part of my introduction to my brother Tim, who we had the privilege of having with us over this <clears throat> the earlier part of this last week. They came sort of as a surprise to us, and we're delighted to have them visit. <clears throat> J. Gresham Machen, who many of you may not know, but he's a great hero of the Presbyterian Church, who taught at Princeton. In a book, The Origin of Paul's Religion, wrote the following statement about Paul: <clears throat> It never occurred to Paul to hold principle in abeyance or to hold it away from him, even for the welfare of the souls of men. The deadening blight of pragmatism had never fallen upon his soul. The deadening blight 
of pragmatism had never fallen upon Paul's soul. What is this pragmatism that Machen refers to as the deadening blight of pragmatism? Wosters says that pragmatism generally is the principle that truth must first be tested by its practical consequences. Truth must first be tested by its practical consequences. I often talk with people in the church and the community, as so many pastors do, about matters of faith. Several evenings ago, I talked with an acquaintance about church. In our conversation, she mentioned that she had stopped going in recent years because the pastor of her home church had moved on to another church. What with work, she said, in school during the week, she just hadn't been going. She said she knew she should be, and believe me, I don't press this. (laughs) When you get in these sorts of conversations, they seem to have a life of their own. You know, you just get into the conversation, all of a sudden things start rolling. And and for whatever reason, I guess it's the personal guilt that, that is in our own hearts. People tend to say these things. And so she said, you know, well, I guess it's what with work and with school. I, I just don't go. I know I should be going. And I'm not saying anything. <laughs> so, well, she's saying it all. I don't, you know. Um, <clears throat> and, and pushing guilt on other people is something that, that uh, people aren't necessarily all that good at, but the Holy Spirit can do with much greater power than any of us can do, as long as they know what's right. <clears throat> Several months ago, I talked with a man about his family, and we discussed the background of his family with regard to church, because I asked him, somehow the subject come up, came up, and I said, you know, do you go to church any place? And then he proceeded to lay out the details of his church history, and they had gone to church faithfully, he and his wife, and then, <clears throat> I forget, some, some things happened, and he stopped going, and, and she kept on going, and then they had some kids, and then she stopped going, and, and now he feels like it's time for them to get back into church again. But every time he suggests that they get up and go with their kids who are picked up by a bus and taken to a a church every Sunday morning, she has no interest in it. And he feels guilty as a result of this, particularly because he feels that he was part of the reason that she stopped going and why she won't go back because of his lack of leadership in that area. Every once in a while, though, in the conversations that I have... or visits with people that I have, something delightful comes into the conversation. Whether people are talking with me about their lives or their decisions, their questions in life, occasionally a person comes and says, I have a question. What does the Bible say about? And then they mention the subject or the topic that they are looking for information on. Or they might say, I've always done things this way, but in my reading this past week, I came across this passage, and now I'm wondering if what the way I've been doing it all these years has been wrong. <clears throat> a question like this might not sound unusual to you. You perhaps think that the pastors get asked these sorts of questions all the time. But stop and think, when was the last time you or I asked that question? Or if you're a mother or father, when was the last time your child asked that question? What does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible, what does God have to say about this decision that I have to make? 
<coughs> there's a great irony in this manner. The irony is that the people who so frequently are likely to ask this question for help in applying the Bible to their life and to their decisions are new Christians, not old ones. People who are young in their faith rather than great veterans of spiritual life. You might say, well, obviously, they're the ones who ask for your advice if they're coming to me and I hear this question. After all, they've only been Christians for a short time and they still need help. People who've been Christians for a while get beyond that and they begin to be capable of interpreting Scripture for themselves. They don't need to talk to someone else. Now, there's some truth in this. Certainly, the older that we get in the faith, the more capable we are of listening to Scripture and praying and following the leading of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't make us more dependent upon others helping us make decisions. He, help, he makes us less dependent upon other people helping us make decisions. But it's my conviction that the reason people don't ask questions very often which focus on what the Bible has to say about a practical manner in their lives, isn't because they have found out the answer to their question on their own through private Bible study and prayer, but rather that we grow away from living that way. We move farther and farther from the point at which the Bible is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword to divide joints and marrow. In other words, to cut into the heart and the quick of our lives so that we are affected in life-changing ways. People, therefore, aren't asking how to apply Scripture's teaching to their lives because they aren't looking to God's Word to apply His teaching in Scripture to their lives. The Bible so frequently is not consulted. And why do you think it's the younger Christians today who ask this question? It's the younger Christians because they haven't learned to be independent from their Heavenly Father. They haven't fallen out of the habit yet of asking that one all-important question for those of you who have read it, which is the theme of the book, In His Steps, by Charles Sheldon. What would Jesus do? What does Jesus want me to do? Meanwhile, you and I, who are older in the faith, have taken on the habit of doing what we think will work out best, rather than, frequently, what does God want us to do? or what will he tell us to do? Life is filled with decisions. Some of them seem to us to be little decisions. Others are major decisions. And it is the habit of most of us to decide a matter by asking the question, what will work out best? Pragmatism. What will work out best? Rather than, the question or questions, what will the obedient thing be that we should do? Or what will please God? I was struck by this yesterday as Neil and Steve and I went through the decision-making process of figuring out what our plans would be as, as a church today. Later in the afternoon as I was shoveling snow, I realized how easy it gets and would get to play church. Play church to get to the point where it is just simply a matter of filling in time. And I realize that one of the reasons for that ease of comfort, for me, for instance, and that danger for me, is because I've been a Christian a long time. 
<clears throat> and thinking further about that, I was struck by the fact that the longer people know Christ, the more comfortable we get with our everyday choices and our Christian practice. It becomes the norm. It's like a habit again. It's a habit that develops up, and it's developing in many respects in the right direction because we are developing it in the direction of being Christians and following Christ. But it becomes a habit and ingrained. And if we've started down, it's driving out in the snow. If you get in the wrong rut, you may get stuck. If you stay in the right rut, you'll be able to go smoothly. And I remembered through thinking about this, the charge that the Lord leveled against this church of Ephesus in Revelation. It said in verse 4, Yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. It happens to all people who are Christians. In matters of faith, it's the same in matters of physical life. We never get younger in our faith. We always get older. We always age. So we are destined to go farther and farther away from that new vibrant faith which causes new believers to ask with enthusiasm and energy to look with earnestness and perseverance to find out what God wants of them by studying His Word diligently as though there is a pearl in every word meant to guide them in their everyday living. It's just a simple spiritual fact that we get old in our faith, just as we do in our physical lives. But is it a fact, a spiritual fact, that we also have to grow dry and crusty in our faith as we mature? Is this also a necessary part of aging spiritually? This passage in Revelation seems to indicate some of the serious dangers for, shall we call them or ourselves mature Christians. Now, when you say that word, it sounds sort of like those Christians who have been Christians for some time are like ripe grapes ready to be picked, but perhaps too ripe to eat. I remember a few years ago, my neighbor Fred Mitchell has some beautiful grapes, and he has all kinds of grapes, and he's told us we can take some grapes. So a few times I'd go over there while gardening and pick a few grapes and Sometimes you get some that seem like they're mature and they're so sour you have to spit them out again. <laughs> but one of the things that this passage speaks of in, in verse, the beginning of verse 2, Jesus says, the Lord says to this church, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. There's a danger in getting carried away by deeds, hard work, and perseverance. Because these are the things that we know from long experience Christians are supposed to carry out throughout their lives. He's pleased with them. And yet there is also a cautionary warning in them. Because all of these things he's mentioning are the things that can easily take away from and lead people to losing that first love. We need to do them. But we need to be warned at the same time. Your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Later in, excuse me, later in verse 2, <clears throat> I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. There's a benefit in spiritual age. And the people who have more years spiritually under their belt recognize the fact that there are spiritual dangers around and they get to be very good at detecting them and pointing them out. What is the flip side of this coin? Cynicism. 
Nothing is ever the way it seems. And so these people were very good at finding out those who were not apostles, proving them to be false, doubtless through God's word. How do you find out something that's false not according to God? Examination of life, examination of doctrine and theology. And so by becoming familiar and comfortable with God's word, they were able to use it powerfully to detect counterfeits and fakes. And they had also the benefit, in verse 3, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. The benefit and privilege of having established a reputation and made a name for faithfulness despite persecution. The problem is, in so many instances, instances, these things can easily be summed up in the term slogging on. We can become caught up in carrying out the faith that has taken hold of us in such a way that we are determined to see it through to carry it out. We have to prove that it's true because we have embraced it. The Holy Spirit has caused us to come to Christ and therefore we have got to prove that this faith that we have accepted is true. There is much benefit in being able to recognize more and more years in the faith. But that benefit should never be counted for the wrong reasons. There is no benefit in being able to say to someone how old we are as Christians. Big deal. Big deal. (laughs) Do years in the Christian faith automatically denote maturity? We know that's not so. Paul made that clear by saying in Romans 12, verse 3, For by the grace given me I say to every one of you, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. This has nothing to do with years. Everything to do with faith and God's provision of it for you and me in our growth. Further, there is no value in spiritual aging in developing a vocabulary. Unless you're going to use that vocabulary to help you understand God and his work more clearly. Or unless it helps you explain God and his work to those who don't know him more clearly. A Christian vocabulary is very unlikely to help us explain God and his work to people who do not know him. It would be better for us as we mature in the faith to learn the words atonement, justification, purification, sanctification, all of these ifications. <laughs> but to learn these words, but then to also understand a simple explanation of these words, simple definition of the words. And to drop the catchphrases altogether, it would be better for us not even to learn the big words, but to learn the concepts of the God that we serve. Not even to learn the big words, than be in the danger of communicating the timeless glory of God's work through salvation, through a stilted vocabulary that convinces people that do not know Christ that we are using these words and these catchphrases As so many people use words and phrases, 
just as another clique who use their vocabulary to exclude people. We should not, as we mature as Christians, ever allow our vocabulary to be the means of convincing people that what we have is something they cannot understand or cannot take hold of. The essence of our faith is right where we left it. If we have in any respects grown cold in our faith, in the certainty that the Lord is Lord of all, it is He who revived our souls and turned us towards Himself through repentance. And you and I must never be satisfied and accept the status quo when we find ourselves being good at these things, carrying out spiritual works, being able to detect the charlatans, the fakes, and having a reputation. Because we began our faith with a vibrant love for the Lord. That must continue if we are to continue to please Him. This passage reveals that. In verse 4, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. What goes wrong then among believers as we mature? It is the danger of our faith, though of course not all of us get caught in it, that we can easily make a formula out of everything we do as Christians. Formulize it. Having decided once that this is the way God wanted things to do, we did it for years and years and years. And the things that helped us make our decisions were how we did it in the past with the words that everybody who has been a part of a church at one time or another is familiar with. We've always done it that way. For instance, we have to make sure we do not get caught in the rut of we've always done it that way. Or I do it this way, this is pragmatism, I do it this way because it works. We must constantly ask ourselves, Am I doing it the way God wants me to? Is there anything that he wants for me to change about the way I'm doing things? You and I need a continual refreshing from the Holy Spirit. We must constantly stay out of the rut of indifference and pragmatism. We must be renewed by the power of God so that as we age as Christians, we do not also calcify, harden, and seize up. It can happen, and it does happen to Christians. And finally, in chapter 2, the Lord told these people what needed to happen. In verse 5, Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So we, as Christians, need constantly to hark back in thinking and remembrance what it was like to become a new Christian our excitement and enthusiasm for the Lord Jesus Christ who had brought salvation to our very own doorsteps. We need further to repent of any hardness in our hearts. Repent of taking things easy and getting accepting the way things go, falling into the trap of continuing on in ruts. And we need to do the things we did at first. What will this involve as Christians? Cultivating the relationship with Jesus Christ. Cultivating that relationship. I, I trot this one out there just a little bit because I haven't looked at it, but 
it's something for us to think about. Um, our Through the Bible in a Year plaque. And just thinking about that, it occurred to me that, well, number one, my name's not on there yet, okay? We started this in, what, 91? Don't chuckle over here. <laughs> but it would be interesting, and this is one of those things you, you don't want to do because it's not all that healthy, but it would be interesting to look at this and note if it's the... Older, mature Christians, and I don't mean older people. I mean older people who have been Christians for longer, who have have accomplished this task of reading through the Bible or a testament in a year, or if it's the younger ones. I would suspect we would find it's the younger ones. Because I think what so often happens as we mature in the faith is we know the Bible. Carry on reading it, sure, but make a challenge out of it get heavily involved in it, take it extremely seriously again, that is what we must do. We must do this if we are not to calcify and harden and seize up in our faith. Turn to the Lord in conversation. I remember as a child, my father used to ask me from time to time, I'd have my eyes closed throughout the day, What are you doing? Well, I'm praying. I'm asking forgiveness. I remember that. It's one of those things that happens to new Christians. This relationship is intimate. It's personal. It's close. We have to return to these things. Because we are in a relationship that will last for eternity. And we cannot grow stale in it any more than we want to or do grow stale in any of our other intimate relations. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would keep us from hardening into spiritual indifference. We ask that you would prevent us from becoming so good at using your word and applying it that we become cynics and are able to spot fakes on every corner. We ask that you would keep us from establishing our level and our practice of spiritual good works and doing them by rote. We ask instead that you would renew the wellsprings of salvation in our hearts, that you would turn on through your Holy Spirit the heat of warmth that is in relationship with our Heavenly Father and with our Savior Jesus Christ. Renew these things within us. We ask you to accomplish this. We promise that we will be submissive to you in this. In Jesus' name, amen.